Have you ever secretly wished that you could grab a drink with your horse's vet to ask your most burning questions and hear the latest and greatest in the equine medical world? Welcome to The Barnyard, a podcast which brings you the inside scoop from equine professionals on what's new and has them excited. But with engaging stories from a day in the life of a vet, The Barnyard is full of all the fun and laughs as a chat with your best friend. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome veterinarian Dr. Aaron Trawick-Smith as our guest, who just so happens to also be a close personal friend. Dr. Aaron caught the veterinary bug at a young age and spent most of her time at the stable until attending Barnard College in New York City. While there, she volunteered at the Bronx Zoo's hospital and won an entrepreneurial scholarship for writing a veterinary business plan. She assisted with cancer research at MIT for a year before starting vet school at Tufts University while also working at the Smart Pack store. Dr. Erin has a particular fondness for event horses. When she isn't gelding donkeys, she is restoring her 1700s era home, riding her gorgeous horse, Queen Kona, or cleaning her beloved dog, Scarlet, who loves to cover her entire body in horse manure. I feel really fortunate in a way that I've been able to have a social interaction with you where I can pick your brain about things that are, you know, like, hey, what's going on with this? And you've told me that in kind of a more social setting, but most people, you call your vet, your vet comes to address something very specific. They, you know, do the diagnosis, they make the prescription, and then it's kind of it from there, unless they're a total pain in the ass client who calls you every day. You know, other than that, it's sort of like, that's it. But you might not necessarily have the chance to kind of like talk through hey, by the way, like what has happened in this area of medicine over the past couple of years, that could even in and of itself is something relevant to share because again, me as a lay person, I might be sitting here thinking, well, why every time my horse is colicking, why is the vet doing the exact same thing? Hasn't anything new happened since? <laughs> and, you know, isn't there a new drug? Why are we still using Vanamine? You know, and, and so that in and of itself is something that if people are aware of the fact that you're just going back to the basics to a certain extent, because either studies have shown that no new techniques or no new drugs really make a impact one way or the other. And so it's kind of all back to the old practices that in and of itself is important information for people. I should, I mean, I don't, there's a lot of, there are a lot of small things and important things that research is done on. Um, but I think that maybe more of them are geared at the, a hospital environment. They're like, you know, very, very sensitive ways to manage medical cases or anesthesia or know what your, uh, you know, your risk is having colic surgery for a, a very specific uh, predicament. And what we are trying to assess on a farm for a normal person who either doesn't have a referral option or, um, you know, doesn't have even who doesn't have unlimited funds. Those things become much more incidental. They become a lot more. It's it's just more about the feel and the experience and um, what makes sense and what you're going to get for your money. Because sure, there might be a ton that you can do for a particular injury, but is the is the value that you're going to get there as far as like the chances of it helping your situation for 
what $3,000 means to you as a family. It's a lot more of that, um, that sort of emotional weighing and, um, you know, for colic, it's like what we're trying to get to is, is it surgical or not surgical? And then if it's not surgical, can we keep a horse comfortable within reasonable means in the setting that it happens to be in? Um, and that it changes every time, but it's not, it's not something that's very easy to write a paper about, you know, and, and people do like, there definitely are really great, very helpful papers that are just retrospective analyses of, of what's happened in a ton of different situations. But, um, most of these day-to-day things are the, they're the cases that don't get recorded. What? percentage of cases would you say you ever determine what caused it is that common where you are able to figure out what triggered the colic not i don't i think it's it's almost never are you able to figure out what triggered it because it's probably 15 things um or something we don't even understand we still talk about uh barometric pressure being a, a contributing factor to colics and um, so I don't think, no, we, we, we almost never know what it was unless it's like a horse went out and ate a, you know, garbage can of grain. <laughs> um, but it's more what the clinical presentation is and then how that resolves because, um, like an impaction, if you can feel an impaction, then you can say there's an impaction. <laughs> but so much of the time we're working with less than that. There's nothing that's like, yes, you must go to a hospital now. And then otherwise you're working with heart rate. You're working with um, like whether they want a treat. <laughs> a lot of it is heart rate, gut sounds, comfort. It's so much based on the individual animal and then time helps a lot. And so is this particular animal one that is comfortable enough to give it time? Can we keep its pain controlled? Because you could have something simple that's horribly painful and something surgical that that's a really stoic animal. Um, they're all, they're all very different. And so you can have a gas colic that really, really thinks it's dying right? and you can't tell it it's not. So if we can resolve that super and we give it time, we give it hydration, we let the world figure itself out. Um, and that's really, that's really what we're working with is that individual animal and what its pain tolerance is. And then is there something that is clear, um, but oftentimes those things are not are either found upon having surgery and visualizing them or upon, you know, a necropsy, unfortunately, um, or at least repeat ultrasound. Otherwise, you're dealing with it gets better or it doesn't get better. And if it gets better, you don't have any idea what's going on in there, you know, and that's that. Like it's surgical, non-surgical, too painful, not too painful. Obviously, so many of the diagnostic tools have become more portable, so have the ability to be able to determine how severe the colic is on farm improved by virtue of having more portable, higher resolution ultrasound machines, or not really? A little bit. I don't think a lot. I think it's looking for, um, you know, we can look for distended intestine pretty easily. Um, I think a lot of this is the result of market factors and accessibility to normal practitioners. And I'm just thinking 
I mean, I guess it's certainly case by case, but I'm thinking, okay, when Wiley went to Tufts, I remember that really everything was still up in the air the night he arrived because they were concerned with the rectal exam, which is the exact same thing you were able to do. Um, and there was nothing that according to the ultrasound was really swaying them one way or the other over how, what the outcome was going to be. And really it was a matter of the next morning, he just pooped a little and, you know, does he feel better? It's a lot of data assessment. Um, it's really a lot of just repeat symptoms and data assessment pattern management. Right. And it, it can be a lot more sophisticated than that, but ultimately it often is just pattern recognition and management. And um, that's the stuff that we are grappling with as ambulatory practitioners um, that we, we often do for free you know, um, and, and that's kind of like where I think we're tele telemedicine and telehealth has come more into our lingo because of the pandemic. Um, we do, we do an awful lot of that just on the phone or by digital means. One of the big differences to me in going to a hospital, having a horse at a hospital versus having a horse at home is the transfer of the data collection and observation and loss of sleep to someone that's not you. <laughs> and to someone who knows what those things mean more um, instantly than, than you would. And maybe you have to gather those patterns and hand them off to someone else and say, okay, now what does this mean? Usually that's me. Um, but if you have your horse at a hospital, someone's doing both of those things at the same time. They're looking and they're reacting. The Barnyarn is brought to you by Stable Select. Think of Stable Select as a matchmaker for your horse. Stable Select is a new online community which connects stables and trainers with boarders and students, so each finds the perfect fit, whether that be a companion home or a premium boarding facility. Stable Select also revolutionizes the administrative process for equine professionals, saving them valuable time with an end-to-end -end platform that manages everything from marketing and communication to contract exchange and payment processing. What's more is that Stable Select is committed to giving back to the equine community by donating 15% of profits to horse rescues. Become a member now for free. Visit www.stableselect.com. I remember you were mentioning about the lidocaine. That was really something that could only be done in hospital. So that as a drug that has a certain success rate, being able to be done only in a hospital versus in a farm setting. It has a very specific loading dose and, um, you know, a tight dosing regime so that if you, if it stops, you have to reload it. Um, so like, you know, your horse is in its stall, you check on it every two hours. During that two hours, it yanked its fluid line out or off, it stopped the lidocaine drip and it needs to be reloaded. It's just not something that is appropriate to be trying to do without someone doing walk-bys and, and managing it because the physiologic risks of it going wrong are too high. It's just not, you know, there are things that the liability in my, in my mind is just not appropriate to be doing. Would you say that 
um, maybe this is more going into colic surgery or improvements in colic surgery. I remember when I asked, and again, like stupid, you know, person who fortunately not lots of wood had <laughs> Didn't been have to do that a lot of colics before. <laughs> I was just really lucky in that Wiley had never colics, and my horse previous to Wiley had had like one minor colic that like one dose of banamine. She was like, Oh, I'm fine now. I'm better I was like, now. Oh, that's miraculously wonderful. Thank you. But like literally have not had much colic experience, which is fortunate for me. But like, um, when, when they were, you know, it was like the big drama moment of like, are you going to have colic surgery? Like if, if he needs colic surgery, are you doing it? Can you do it? <laughs> Can you do it? What is the status? It's almost like a do not resuscitate status, exactly. you know? Exactly. It was totally that. It totally felt like a do not resuscitate status. Um, but when she asked me that, I was like, well, you know, I'm thinking that by now there's going to be some advancements. Just like my mother, when she had a C-section, got sliced all across her stomach. And now you see like women who have C-sections who have like, like tiny little incisions that you can barely see. So I was like, oh, colic surgery has probably improved so much over the past like 20 years when I knew. Awesome now. And it's only $2,000. No, it wasn't just the, it wasn't no, like I know. the, it was like, I said, well, do you still slice them all the way open? And she was like, yeah, we slice them all the way open. And I'm thinking they're just making a tiny little incision and being able to oh, stick no. something there and go in with some sort of magical camera and just pull out what, you know, like, like rotor rooter, whatever they need out of there with this little tiny camera. And then whoop, we t take the little incision that's like, four inches wide and just suture it up and we're all good to go. And she was like, no, 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 we cut him, his whole gut open. And so like, have there been, no, with that background, is there, are there greater success rates coming out of colics, whether it's from the farm standpoint? I mean, it sounds like there's not many new drugs that are being applied. Um, and it sounds like at the hospital, it's pretty much the same, but maybe they've been able to track like what works and what doesn't over decades of practice in hospital of, you know, we dose the lidocaine at this level and yeah. that level and we adjusted it accordingly. But like if surgery hasn't really changed that much and the drugs themselves haven't really changed much, have success rates for colics changed much or is it pretty much the same as it was like 20 years ago? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if anyone really does. Um, because if you're talking decades, I mean, really the papers that we have available to us as case studies are assessing the last couple of decades. <laughs> like that's what we've got, you know, um, for data, but definitely anesthesia has improved leaps and bounds for horses. Anesthesia as a field is just phenomenal. Um, and pain management in a hospital when you have IV availability has improved. Pain management on the farm is not nearly where I wish it was. Um, you know, there just haven't been any new mechanisms or, or drugs, but that's nearly true for dogs and probably for people. It's the, the tweaking of aftercare in a hospital setting, but unfortunately so much of it is dependent on how long was this horse sick before it got to surgery. 
you know, what is this horse's age? What is its metabolic status? What is its very specific bacterial flora? There's just so much we can't account for. What about like post-colic kind of um, recalibration of their intestinal health? I remember with Wiley, somebody had said like, oh, you know, with all the disruption to his gut flora from all the antibiotics he's been on like he might need a fecal transplant and I was like what the heck is that like I, you know just something I've never even thought of and heard of and it was like well because you know you've got to reintroduce all this stuff that's been depleted so, so but you don't know what he started with right <laughs> you know like that's not to interrupt you but like it's so complicated but yes 100% that is um Still, I, I still think more, my own impression is that more in small animal than in equine, but still, you know, universally, I think that is following along with the human, uh, like people talk more about the relationship, the very, very vague, unknowable relationship between uh, GI flora, chronic inflammation, inflammatory markers, vagal nerve dysfunction, like all these things and, you know, depression and headaches, like it's all just way above my pay grade. Um, but I, we have data sets coming out on, okay, what bacteria, what constitutes good and bad bacteria? How consistent is that across a set of horses? And like, how consistent is that with certain feeding and certain environments? Um, what does that do? Like, so at least how do pre or pre and probiotics help outcomes in different scenarios like diarrhea? I just read, um, there was a paper that came out in diarrhea, I think it was diarrhea in babies. Like, so the probiotics were, uh, actually detrimental to foals with diarrhea at a certain level. Um, you, you don't want to like give them to, to, um, babies that have like uh, rotavirus or, you know, different things. Um, so those things are coming out. Um, and then also how they help with, uh, reconstituting bacterial flora, but like you're doing that, you can only have one variable at a time. And so it's just really hard. Like, what does that mean with anti-inflammatories? What does that mean with pro-motility agents that you might have in a hospital? What does that mean with a particular, you know, like in, in different supplements and different uh, consistencies and with other ingredients and psyllium and not psyllium. And it's just like, it's a mess. <laughs> We're getting there, but it's a mess. <laughs> your point where like you don't if it's a very individual based constitution of a gut environment that's like we think oh you're just going to give it a probiotic and that's going to fix everything but that might be not something that the horse is lacking um in that particular bacterium and rather what they what really is an equilibrium to their system is something that isn't found in any kind of like probiotics and that's where the fecal transplants come in and i think they're um you know they're I was I was very skeptical at first because I was like, I'm really gonna be tubing poop to anyone that sounds yucky. <laughs> um, I actually have a, a good client who brought it up to me before I was thinking anything about it. She's a human researcher, and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And then I was, and then I had a patient uh, go to an internist who came back, and they were doing that and recommending, and I was like, oh no, I really do have to do this. But <laughs> they did a study recently. The 
the day because we have all these older horses with diarrhea and i think it right. was basically like we did fecal transplants for a subset of horses that were seemingly healthy but had this chronic like excess fecal water and um a, you know like maybe i think 50 50 percent of them it helped and or and 50 it didn't kind of thing and no one really knows why Huh. So it's like, give it a shot. And so when I'm like, hey, your horse has this chronic horrible diarrhea, we could like, for a couple of days, come give his brother's poop to him. People don't leap at that, but maybe I'm also not selling it really successfully. <laughs> <laughs> There's a 40 to 50% chance it might help. <laughs> so that, uh, the, the, the sticking other... The horse's poop up your horse's butt doesn't isn't a crowd pleaser. Well, it's not up their butt. It's, it's down their face. So wait, it's down their face. Yeah, you tube them with it. You put it in their stomach. Oh, I thought you put it up that way. No. Oh no. Oh no, it goes down. So the not body. only do I have to place a tube, and you know what horse really loves that, and then we have to tube them with. Oh no, with poop. Do you like? distill it or spin it or something or it just goes in you have to um you have to strain it so that because you can't like the tubes that we use are like the inside diameter of them is not very big right so you you can't push a lot of the chunks that are actually in a normal <laughs> so you, you mix like, it you mix do? it with water and then you strain it and then you know one or two times and then you get poop water poop soup <laughs> You poop them with the, you tube them with the poop water. Um, oh my god! Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought it went up the other end. You know, I think how I don't know how many data sets there are, but like it's some it's something that ultimately has a better success rate than probably half the stuff that we try. <laughs> Most of the supplements that people are paying a ton for, right? But it's just weird. <laughs> It's just weird. I did it was um, for a post was a, for a colitis case. It was um, an ultimately undiagnosed colitis case. I think it's beneficial if you do it a couple days in a row. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also hadn't done it, so like my tube was clogging, and like I hadn't done it enough that I was efficient at straining. <laughs> There were some chunks in the soup. <laughs> yeah. Now I could go, you know, like, now I think that that experience, like, if someone was like, yeah, let's do it, I'd be like, yeah, I'm game to, I'm going to be su really successful at this. I don't think I'm alone. I, I suck on the <laughs> Wait, how else does somebody create a Don't lotion? tell. It's a biologic hazard, but I do it. So um, that, you know, I, that means that I would potentially be like, drinking the poop water a little bit <laughs> so that's kind of unfortunate <laughs> oh my god poor joe the fact that he's listening to this is gonna be like i'm never kissing you again <laughs> i hope that he's not i hope that he's not i mean it's like we had other crap in our like even in a normal college like, there's always a chance i'm gonna accidentally get like a reflux jetted at me you know? <laughs> And if it doesn't go in the mouth, it certainly goes around the mouth. <laughs> I mean, if we could just present them with a bucket and have them eat it, it would be great. I remember some horses that would eat. Oh yeah, some of them are. Not enough probably to do a real, you know, medical service to themselves. <laughs> but... 
No, I remember when I was growing up, there was this like ancient little, ha- like grumpy little hackney pony, and he uh, he ate poop all day long. I gotta think it's because there is some sort of imbalance where they know that like they're not getting. But why is he eating his own poop? He's not getting anything about out of his own poop. Dogs at least at least eat their like- siblings' poop. Like his teeth were bad or something, and so he didn't digest things properly oh, and he had to like yeah, put it through again. He's <laughs> going back for second round hay. I mean, I guess I would buy that more, but um, I don't. I don't think there's data to show that. <laughs> no data for the actual benefit. Well, there's data for the benefit of poop eating, but not the pattern of it. I don't think anyone's ever successfully figured that one out. Of like why some horses eat their coprophagy, yeah, <laughs> or why some horses poop in their food or water buckets <laughs> like why they can aim they know they're jerks that's why but like do, so you don't think that that horse wait you've met a horse who intentionally poops in its water every day like very regularly yeah like always had poop in its water bucket i have no answer for that and i was like why like you obviously can aim you, you know where your ass is Sticking. Do so, they? Do they why know? Are you doing this and and not giving yourself clean water? I don't understand that. Maybe like was this your horse? No, 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 no. It was like a barn I worked at. So like maybe the bucket had a yucky film on it, and they were saying, "Excuse me, this needs a refill." <laughs> it was like a pro. Like um, there is cork in my wine. <laughs> It's a good theory. I like it. I don't know if that was the reason. He might have just been a jerk, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. I don't know. I thinking, I, he needed like poop stew. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope not. Um, I've not known a horse that did that. Ben wants you to come eat dinner now. Yeah. I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. I think we've how do you <laughs> shoot it, shot, shat the shit? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to The Barnyard, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Join us next time for more fun and engaging conversations with equine veterinarians. And check out our sponsor, Stable Select, at www.stableselect.com. Until next time, happy riding! Happy riding!